Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I hope this title caught your interest. Many of you are involved in worship situations. You lead worship, you're pastors, maybe you're involved in music. And so that brought your attention to this podcast. And so I'm excited to share it with you. And I think you'll find this really interesting. I hope it will drive you to go and find Dr. Lester Ruth's book, and he'll tell me about his co-author as well when we get him on in a second. But first, I just want to make sure you know that this podcast is sponsored by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that through a variety of programs for people who are looking for academic degrees, bachelor's, master's, doctorate degrees, and also several lay initiatives. And I just want to highlight one of those for you right now, and that is our Wesley Institute, which has two tracks. It's a nine-month program that meets weekly. And then the Bible track of that program goes through every book of the Bible that is taught by seminary professors for people who are in lay leadership positions. And then we have a new theology track that just started. So you can still get in on that. And you can go to wbs.edu to find out more about that program. Secondly, I just want to make sure you all know that we have a few things available to you coming from my website. A new tool that's available is called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It walks people through the inductive Bible study method with the aim of helping them think about how they can create preach in a creative way to connect with their congregation. So this is a 45-minute video teaching I have and in addition to an eight-page document that's available for free for people who sign up for my web uh, for my email list at Andy Miller the Third. That's Andy Miller dot. Come. And finally, we're thankful to WPO Development, who has helped make this podcast happen. Their CEO, Keith Waters, um, has, has this great line. He says, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And he comes along and helps people with strategic planning, mission planning studies, and capital campaigns. And he's done that for more than 250 organizations around the country. So we'd love for you to check them out. They've been great supporters of this podcast. So you can find, um, you can just Google WPO Development, or you can find the link in the show notes. So today, I am excited to invite into the podcast Dr. Lester Ruth, who serves as a research professor for Christian worship at Duke Divinity School. Lester, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Andy. It's good to be with you. Now, you and I were in the same town for seven years together, and we never had a conversation until we just talked just before this call. So you taught at Asbury Seminary while I was a student there, and I'm really thankful for opportunity to get to engage you on your new book. But we started talking before this interview. I thought we'd never get to the interview because I was interested in your research into American Methodism as well. Tell us just a little bit about your work before we get to your other academic work and research before we get on to the praise and worship topic? Well, sure. A um, simple way of putting it is to say that I was, first of all, a pastor who had an interest in worship history. Okay. And then I became a worship historian who's maintained pastoral sensibilities. There you go. So uh, most of my work, my early work was in the early church, first four centuries, or in early American Methodism. And then uh, more recently, the last 10 to 12 years, I've shifted over to the last half century uh, to answer almost an autobiographical question for me, which is where did contemporary worship come from and what shaped it and how did we get to where we are today? Right. And, and you, you, I like that you brought up the autobiographical piece of this and at the, the beginning of your book. And, and please forgive me for not mentioning your co-author. The, the book is A History of Contemporary Praise and Worship Music, Understanding the Ideas that Reshaped the Protestant Church. And it's written by you and your co-author, Lim Zui Hong. Am I saying that right? 
Lim Sui Hong. So yes. So in good Chinese fashion, Lim is his family name. Okay. Okay. So he goes by Sui Hong, and he's a Methodist from Singapore, lifelong okay. Methodist, and is a music professor in one of the colleges at the University of Toronto. Okay. Interesting. So you begin this book, and it's your story, one of your stories at the start that highlights some, a, a moment 15 years ago. So I guess it's 16 years ago now because the book came out last December um, of a student coming up to you. And this maybe uh, triggered something in your mind about the way people might misunderstand um, worship. So yeah. tell us that story. So at the time, I was teaching a worship history class at Asbury Seminary, and uh, the class met in Royal Auditorium. There it is. You can remember Royal Auditorium. I had uh, my own classes in there when I was a Asbury student in the early 80s. And uh, we were doing a case study approach, and I forgot which particular case from worship history we were looking at, but I had a student come up after class. And you can almost see the light bulb above his head. And he, and he just told me, he said, Dr. Reed, he says, I finally think I understand what you're talking about. And talking about this worship, ancient worship history. I said, well, what? Tell me why. He says, you're telling me that the pastor is a kind of worship leader too. And I think that's when I realized that there was a whole generation of younger right. Christians for whom the term worship leader was almost exclusively a musical term yes. or a musicianship term, and that they had very limited liturgical expectations from their pastors or preachers, actually. And I, I wish I'd realized that from the get-go, because I could have said that on the first day of class, and that would have <laughs> helped him understand a lot of this historical material. But that's uh, uh, that was just one of several hooks that got into me over the years about this topic to try to help uh, well, help people understand that worship broadly has a history, but this worship, too, has its own history. I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but when, when do you think that pivot happened? When was it? I mean, it might have been, you know, the whole history of your book. I understand, like, you're going to describe that, but did you notice that in teaching? Was this while after you started teaching that you noticed this change happen? Like Which a change. Oh, I'm sorry. Like a student, student saying that, thinking that worship leading was uh, equated with music leadership. Well, let's say um, it was a young student. He would have been in his mid 20s, so not totally exceptional. Um, so he'd been born you know, let's say mid-80s. Sure. Yeah, by the time he was a preteen, teenager, kind of becoming aware of things, that switch had already taken place. Okay. Uh, and in fact, that term worship leader is arising as a technical term in the late 70s and becomes a really mainstream sort of term by the mid-80s to late 1980s. So, yeah, so let's assume this was 2005, give or take, I don't remember the exact yeah, year, sure, sure. and this student was born 1980. Hey, sounds um, like Andy Miller to you, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, well, you know, I, <laughs> maybe it was you, Andy. Um, um, no, 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 no. Um, you know, he would never have known a world, a worship world, where he would have gone on Sunday morning, and the first voice, and the first face he saw was not the pastor's. Right but was a musician standing 
center stage. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that that is incredible to think about, but that's a change that really from the 1960s to 1980s really just um, like a tsunami, it just swept over everything. Interesting. And I'm I'm older than that, see, so, and plus I'm uh, academically trained as a worship historian. So, you know, we, I always thought the pastor was the primary worship leader. Interesting. Now, it's maybe it's because of uh, growing up in a, the Salvation Army. So I have this military image that guides what we do. It wasn't a term that I was familiar with um, at oh, yeah. all. And then I ended it, but, but I equate, I would have been like that student. I would have, I would have thought of it as uh, somebody and, and probably even restricted it to you have to play guitar or piano. <laughs> like yeah. even that very specific, like the worship leader is one of those two people. So e even though I wasn't in a, a contemporary church sure. that would have described that. So, so yeah, that was, I, so I think a lot of our, my listeners, that's the context that they're coming in too. So I think it'll be helpful for us to, if we're going to look at the history of praise and worship, it's not like saying, well, Matt Redman trained so-and-so and taught him to play guitar. And then he went and train so-and-so we're talking about a bigger picture so get get us into this idea of what we're thinking about when we how we can then understand what the contemporary christian a uh, contemporary praise worship movement was okay uh the image we use in the book is of two parallel rivers yes because uh what uh, dr lim and i discovered as we were working on the topic was that there wasn't any single source or explanation for the whole phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And by that, if you look at Pentecostals, evangelicals, and mainline folks, right, who picked up some form of band-based pop music, informal form of worship, there's not a single source. Okay. Two, but there are kind of two broad developments. We call them rivers. Okay. And the critical time is really the late 1940s, right after World okay. War II. Um, and one of the headwaters is thoroughly Pentecostal. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the other one is thoroughly evangelical. Um, okay. In fact, Parachurch, it's a youth organization, Youth for Christ. Uh, the motivations are different. Um, their theologizing is different. Even the outward expression is different. But what both of those headwaters of both of those rivers let loose in the late 1940s, 1950s, uh, continues to grow and swell. Um, and by the 1980s, it's sweeping up lots of people. And then in the 1990s, we say that these two rivers actually kind of converge. Interesting. Confluence. Um, and so if you've, uh, for the listeners, if you, if you have grown up in a world where you've only known CCLI, <laughs> um, you only know the post-confluence world. Interesting. This is so helpful. So what, t tell me a little bit more about this. The, the first river that you described, the Pentecostal, I, I know you have a different name for it, the Pentecostal River, but it had a different emphasis. Um, yeah. Than, our, yeah. Our, our simple names for them are the Gift River and the Gap River. Okay. Gift and Gap. Gift and, and Gap. 
Uh, I imagine the gap is connected to the idea that there's a gap between the church and the world. And so we need to fill that gap where the gift river is emphasizing spiritual gifts or well, no, 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 it's emphasizing the renewal of worship itself as the gift of God. Interesting. Okay. That gotcha. God has revealed some important scriptural truths. And that if you will reshape your practices to fit these scriptural truths, God will renew your worship and renew your church and bring revival. Gotcha. Wow. So what did, what what happened in 1946 or or when yeah, 46 is where um, the Gift River it has a really clear origins. It's a, it's one Pentecostal preacher, Reg Lazelle is his name. Um, he's actually a retired businessman from the Toronto area, and he's out near um, east of Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. Um, leading one of his first meetings he's ever led, and it's going terrible. I mean, it's just pitiful. And there's no move of God. And so if you're Pentecostal and you're leading meetings and there's no move of God, <laughs> something's wrong. It's your problem. <laughs> so he sets aside a whole day. He goes to the church and he begins to fast and pray. And there's a psalm verse that comes to mind, Psalm 22.3, which in the King James Version, I'm not going to remember this precisely, but it says essentially, thou art the Holy One who inhabitest the praises of Israel. Hmm. And what that does for Lazelle is it connects in his mind the praising of God and the manifesting of God's presence. Okay. And he spends the rest of the day walking around the church, praising every, literally everywhere. He goes in the bathroom and praises him <laughs> there. The funniest part is he describes staying at the piano for the longest time because the pianist seems sort of cold and dead. Um, and that night's meeting, a little revival breaks out midway through the first verse of the first hymn. Wow. And that solidifies in his mind that praising God is the key to experiencing the manifest presence of God. Um, that might have stayed kind of an esoteric theology of a single Pentecostal pastor, except a couple of years later, he gets connected with a major revival that breaks out in 1948 in Saskatchewan. Okay. And that revival and everyone who gets involved in that becomes the platform for the dissemination of this if you praise God, you will experience God's presence theology, okay. the gift okay. theology. And so they're all convinced that this is God's restoration of a long forgotten biblical truth that we just need to be obedient to. Mm. And it's, it's that biblical idea that's really the headwaters for that branch of development. Interesting. So what would have what would the worshiping context have been like for him before he started this? Would it have been just revivalistic with uh, spiritual gifts and that type of thing? Yeah, somewhat. Um, think really intense Baptist. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know, 
I would almost think, oh, no, it couldn't have been that different what they were developing. Uh, and what they were developing were long, extended periods of praising God. Okay. Spoken and sung that might last an hour or longer. So was this, was it connected to music? Like, well, I mean, there was musical aspect to it, but did it have a liturgical emphasis? Um, it wasn't immediately connected to music. Okay. So Lazelle's emphasis and the first generation emphasized praising any way that you can. Okay. So it could be praising in your own spoken vernacular language. It could be praising in tongues. It could be singing in tongues, or it could be singing songs of praise in your vernacular. Okay. Um, it didn't matter. And they mixed all of those together in these hour long or longer periods. Interesting. Um, um, so you say, um, now, if I jump ahead too fast, let me know. No, no, then go ahead. You move on to like that this gets deepened after 1965 in this stream. Yeah. Um, what, what is it that happens in that period from 1965 to 85? You say, you, you say that's a distinct period of deepening. Well, you get a second generation of adopters okay. who do a second generation of theologizing. So what you get in this gift river is usually an emphasis either on the restoration of the tabernacle of David or um, an emphasis, a use of the tabernacle of Moses. Okay. So uh, let's deal with Moses first. And what that gives them is a kind of an architectural overlay on how to shape these extended times of praising. Okay, okay. And they attach Psalm 104 to the Mosaic Tabernacle connected to this praise to presence theology. So uh, they develop patterns of beginning with songs of thanksgiving. Okay moving to songs of praise, moving to songs of worship. With, and so um, Psalm 104, enter his gates with thanksgiving, yeah. enter his courts with praise. And then the presumption is, is once you go past all of the different areas and staging points in the Mosaic Tabernacle, you end up in the Holy of Holies enjoying God's manifest presence, which is where you worship. Are there some songs from this period that are, I know it's hard to say what's popular to, um, but that are still a part of like the basic kind of like American context now that, that might typify this? Um, sure. Oh gosh. My, oh, sorry. Put my you on the spot. Went blank. Yeah. Um, oh. Like I think about some of these songs, like uh, David dancing. Uh, there's just maybe some of these. Oh yeah. As you're saying it, like I'm, I'm hearing, I'm feeling like, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. That there's songs about the temple and walking, coming into the holy of holies. Yeah. Well, I none directly come to mind. Um, uh, but I invite your readers if they have a CCLI song select subscription. Yeah. Go to CCLI Song Select and just type in keywords inhabit praises. Okay. Or enthroned on praises. And they'll get hits ranging back um, more than 40 years, including some recent ones. 
Interesting. Um, yeah, the, the language sounds so familiar to me, and I, I wouldn't have thought of it having like this theological emphasis from this stream. So that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what uh, Dr. Liv and I discovered is once we began to look for citations of Psalm 22.3 or allusions to it, okay, we found them everywhere. Wow. Um, I mean, my favorite story to tell, and it's not in the book, but it's with one of my Duke students who's lifelong Pentecostal, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. There you go. So he took my introduction to worship class a few years ago. I have really great conversations with my students after class. So after, after class, I asked this student, it's just when this realization of the importance of Psalm 22.3 was beginning to dawn on me. I said, Drew, have you ever heard that God inhabits the praises of his people? And he looked at me, he said, Dr. Ruth heard it. I've heard it every Sunday of my entire life. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I mean, and Pentecostals don't have written liturgies by and large, but it's right. such a foundational idea that, and I don't think he was overemphasizing it. Literally, he's heard it every time someone has wow. stood up to wow. lead worship somehow some way that basic notion pops to the surface so this uh, this is the key thing maybe not, i don't know the key thing but, uh, in this gift tradition this gift river that in is connecting praising god to experiencing god's presence so does that change in uh, 85 to the 90s when things uh is there a new emphasis that comes after that well, what happens in the starting late 70s, but through the 80s into the 90s, um, the theology is in place by then. So okay. what you get is an explosion of teaching resources and okay. teaching opportunities. And this is when that theology and its practices just sweep the field in terms of Pentecostalism. And that's true not only for North America, but for global Pentecostalism and it, and global evangelicalism for that matter. And wow. it's true not only for white forms, uh, white Pentecostals and evangelicals here, but for um, Latino, Asian, um, it just sweeps the field. Um, huh. one, one of the more interesting sort of things that we did working on this book is we track down the, the only guy who has a complete set of a really important magazine for worship leaders, uh, this first one published from 1985 to 1995 called The Psalmist. Notice okay. that, that connection with Yeah, David sure, there. sure, yeah. So um, the, the originators of it are coming from this restoration of the Tabernacle of David folks, uh, line of theologizing, but anyway, and every issue, and it came out every other month, I think, so six issues a year, they had reports from around the nation, uh, particularly people adopting praise and worship. And they were fascinating reads, the sense of novelty and the excitement and the wonder mm. of being able to experience God in new ways. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is so old hat now, you know. Right, right. I, I don't know if people can think back to uh, those who are of an age where they didn't grow up with it, to think when you started to see this emphasis, it was um, 
it is a huge, huge, I can think about it in my, my denomination is when music started to be published. And this has like been the mid nineties. We probably kept caught on when the streams collided. I'm curious to keep going back. I want to go back still keep with the, um, the gift stream or the gift river there would things like Maranatha and integrity be a part of that. Stream? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, they're from different tributaries feeding into the okay. river. So Maranatha is coming from the Jesus people tributary. Okay. Um, Southern California, um, tied especially to one church, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Okay, yep. Um, Integrity Hosanna is actually coming from a different tributary. The backgrounds to that is actually prosperity gospel Pentecostals. Interesting. Um, but often what happens is after something develops, and particularly when it goes public as some sort of company, the sharp edges get rounded off. Right. Um, and if you could become more mainstream, even if it's primarily kind of a Pentecostal mainstream, um, you can you can sell more copies, I think. Yeah, sure. So, yes. Yeah, so um, uh, those are two strands. The Vineyard, the okay. Vineyard Fellowship. Is a closely related Calvary Chapel strand. Um, the psalmist would have been a different strand. Um, what's another? Uh, the International House of Prayer in Kansas yes. City, the 24-7 folks. Yes. They're um, a related but distinct strand in the whole thing. Um, uh, and once you get out of English speaking, white folks, um, Central and South America, um, uh, ah, yeah. Marcos Witt. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Is the key name. Um, the example that Dr. Lim likes to always point out is um, Stream of Praise, which is uh, Asian-based, um, the largest producer of Chinese praise and worship songs, hmm. is based in Los Angeles. Wow. Um, and, and because there are so many Chinese speakers around the globe, sure. their music, um, Hillsong. Okay. Yeah, sure. Interesting. Uh, another strand, um, origins connected to that early latter rain revival, but filtered through distinctive New Zealand and Australian connections and developments. Um, interesting. Okay. So we have, this is that, that gift brand gift stream gift river but let's back up to go back to the history of the the gap river what, what yep. what's the gap river what makes them up and what makes them distinct well what makes them distinct is a recurring anxiety okay <laughs> that what they've inherited to do on sunday morning is out of sync with contemporary people right won't appeal to them and won't communicate the gospel well to them in fact, will be boring and repulsive to contemporary people. And so that's what they're always thinking about is this gap between what the church is currently doing and where people currently are. Uh, and so they, they're motivated to try to bridge that gap consistently. Uh, they're also doing their own form of biblical theologizing. That's the point Dr. Lim and I try to make in the book is that 
ultimately, both of these rivers and the whole phenomenon is really about trying to grapple with scripture. Yes. What's the scriptural vision for how it is we ought to worship? Yes. Um, whereas that the gift river, notice all my examples came from the Old Testament. Right. And are dealing or creating very specific practices. Gap people tend to emphasize the New Testament. Okay. And what we found is a particular verse from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 22. I think it's 22b, if I'm remembering correctly. I'll become all things to all people in order that I might win some. Okay. And so it's a theology, scripturally based, Scripture-based theology of continual liturgical adaptation mm. <laughs> is the way that it gets applied. Um, you know, even before we came on, you, you know, your own Salvation Army background. Yeah, for sure. That is the theology. Definitely. Um, you find in Catherine Booth. And uh, in fact, there's a long section on Catherine Booth and early Salvation Army worship. Uh, in the book, the okay, adaptation that they're doing. But I even read it all the way back in early American Methodism. Sure. And uh, their Taking the devil's tunes, right? And yeah, yeah, their willingness to adapt, particularly in terms of camp meetings, and mm. and just how successful those were, and okay. at the time being able to reach people. Um, so and that's the priority, like the the kind of the ecclesiology that underscores all this is one that's focused on results, revivalist results. And so whatever the utilitarian task is, uh, you know, is to get that result. Right. Yeah, so, I, I, I think there's a more positive way to spin oh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's OK. Um, I'm always a little cautious. That's where this river gets hammered on. OK, I want to critique it. Thank it's you. Okay. I need to be pushed. This I need. I need to hear this. <laughs> so, uh, and not that I just not that I totally agree with this approach, but I think there's a more positive way to spin. And what is fundamentally motivating these people is an apostolic vision of faithfulness to God's commission. Mm. Yes, and that's what we see over and over and over again to all the people swimming in this river. God has commissioned us. God has given us a mission. And we can't let, um, uh, what's Catherine Booth's phrase? We can't let red tapeism <laughs> <laughs> throw us off fulfillment of this mission. Uh, there's not a bit of red tape in the New Testament, she right, said, yes. if I'm remembering correctly. So, um, so, uh, you know, and it pops up in a wide variety. I find it in mainline folks. I, I found it in my own dissertation director from Notre Dame. Okay. This was his approach in the late 60s and early 1970s. Uh, but Catherine Booth, Amy Simple McPherson, Charles yep. Finney, Francis Asbury. Uh, and then more to the point in the book, um, these youth organizations that arose, okay. parachurch organizations that arose right after World War II. This is their dominant approach. This is what they're developing. Very strong, sometimes radical adaptation in order to be able to reach people. In this case, um, targeted generations. And, and that might express itself then maybe like in things like a, a large church, churches nowadays like might say, have that same sort of 
imagery and idea that that same sort of theology that it, it, they don't you wouldn't see it as much now but i've oh i don't know maybe maybe and you might tell me it, it is a case using popular tunes at the start of a worship service as a way to make people who are new new you know um, non-church people feel welcome. I mean, that that's that same same. Pro- yeah, I, I was being critical of it. I was I was thinking oh, more sure. a little critically of the 19th century expressions. But I would say, uh, if somebody listened to all of my preaching for the last 15 years, you're going to hear a healthy uh, bit of this theology from me. And particularly people when I change things that like that that that's the the way the reason that we are making a change is so we can reach more people for Christ. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I, I'm sorry. I felt like I kind of called you on the carpet. Oh, I, I needed it. I didn't mean to I'm do sure that. a lot but, of people uh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I, and I'll tell you why I did it. And I really wasn't trying to do it for you. It is some of my interlocutors, some of my other academic liturgical historians, who I think have been too easily dismissive right. of this phenomenon. And so they just create a straw man and say, you know, this is nothing but 19th century revivalism, you know, raising its head again. And of course, we knew how bad it was then. And of course, it's going to be bad now. And, you know, and, you know, what I like to tell my own students is, you know, if they treated 16th century Reformation history like that, (laughs) you know, they would get, well, you know how academics are, they would just get hammered. So why is it that they're not hammered academically when they just raise some sort of yeah straw man that they can complain about too easily so anyway. when you said that about 19 this is 19th century revivalism all over again i was like well praise the lord we need some of that yeah, like, yeah let's bring it on and i think that's what some of my work is trying to focus on um the often the claim is that the ecclesiology of that period was weak you know and i want to say well they they had a different understanding of what the church was but it, it seemed like it was pretty effective and uh we're our institutions are here today likely uh, though in my tradition in wesleyan holiness movement um because of it <laughs> yeah I, I i would i would say their ecclesiology wasn't necessarily weak it was different and had different emphases yes yeah and one of the nice things my own dissertation director, James White, taught me was oh. try to appreciate every group on its own terms. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, I appreciate James White's writing through the years. Yeah, he's a well-known. You know, and wow. my shorthand way of saying that is that no one shows up on Sunday morning trying to figure out how they can intentionally mess it up. There you go. You know, so there's always a rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. And, you know, and once you understand it, then you can take a step back and go, well, this is what they're missing, or perhaps this is what they're overemphasizing, you know. Yeah, interesting. So so what happened before these rivers combined? What else happened in the Gap River? What else is going on there beyond? So it gets connected after World War II to these various uh, youth ministries, yep. campus ministries. What else? Is, who, who else is a part of this? Is this kind of like the Bill Gaither side or... I don't know. I'm curious where some of the names and now it's here. I am just talking about music again. Um, be, but what else is oh, a part sure. of this stream? Well, for the gap people, initially they really do emphasize music first. Okay. 
Um, well, the gifts people do too, but they're willing to use anything that they already have at hand. They're not trying to create anything new. They're just trying to repurpose what they already have. Okay, okay. But the gap people are trying to create new things. And so they're intentionally doing things. Um, they're trying to be edgy. So the best example is a fellow named Ralph Carmichael. Oh, yeah. Who I we had hoped to interview him, but he was in poor health and towards oh. the end of his life. In fact, has recently passed away. Uh, but we had some email exchanges with his uh, wife and she sent us a wonderful glossy photo of Ralph Carmichael that we put in the book. But anyway, um, you know, uh, he tells an interesting story, which I think is paradigmatic kind of for what's going on here. And he's discovered that his own teenage daughter in the early 60s is sneaking out of the house to the car so she can listen to pop radio okay. in the car. Okay, uh, he must not have allowed it in the house itself. And and he says, you know, if I want the church to be able to reach my own daughter, yeah, it's got to use music that interests her. Yeah. So and he's a wonderful, very flexible composer. Right. And um, and starts to compose some things. Um, uh, the, Perhaps one of the more influential things is a music score he did for a movie that Billy Graham, it came out of the Billy Graham Association in the mid 60s. Uh, one particular song, He's Everything to Me. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, which we try to argue in the book is perhaps the first instance that many evangelicals ever saw a worship time led by an acoustic guitar. Okay. There's a scene in the movie where they're singing that song. Um, but he's just the first. Uh, Youth for Christ is doing it. But um, mainliners are involved in this too. Um, the 1960s is a very tumultuous cultural period. Right. Um, and So I've heard. Yes. Well, I lived through <laughs> it. Yes. Even though I was a kid. Yeah. You know, even, even as a, you know, as a small kid, you just knew how tumultuous it was right. between the war, um, assassinations, protests, uh, civil rights movement. You know, I tell my own students here, you know, I, when I was a kid, I used to think, uh, try to calculate how soon my own town would be bombed in the coming nuclear war. Wow. And I figured it'd be pretty early since there were oil refineries. Okay. Near yeah. where I grew up. I, I who, yeah, why are six and seven-year-olds thinking like that? You know, which, yeah. Yeah. so it was a tumultuous yeah, time. This is, the, this is that period. And so, and the other thing to factor in, something that we would just not think twice about, the 1960s is really where you start getting pervasive TVs. Oh, yeah. And so prior to that, and this is something my own dissertation director was arguing at the time. He said, prior generations are used to listening to the radio. And so they're willing to sit there in a worship service and have most of it come in through their ears. Yeah. But now we have a TV generation who are used to looking at things. Our worship services much must be much more visually enticing. Mm -hmm. 
mm. which is a stretch for any form of Protestant worship because Protestants have always emphasized speaking and listening. Mm -hmm. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's a fundamental Protestant liturgical principle. Hmm. Um, and so to emphasize faith comes by seeing and seeing in a dynamic setting, that's, oh, that's, uh, that's very revolutionary liturgical. Yeah. Now, the gift people are going, what? what in the world are you talking about? We're just going to sit here and praise God for an hour. <laughs> yeah. And we're quite confident that that will bring revival and then the, the people will be attracted to that. But the gap people are like, no, no, no. People are out of touch. They find church boring. We're not doing what's attractive to We're not doing what communicates to them. So let's just shake the whole thing up. So is this yeah. where, is a gap, a gap world, gap river where music festival christian music festivals come into being oh yeah cornerstone oh, yep. 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 I, I, we're both connected to asbury and yep. uh, the music festival that type of thing so yeah so that's that's this desire to see something see something going on in the culture with woodstock or whatever and create an alternate vision and it, it, it is, is ccm in itself a part of the gap tradition like well it, well it, ccm bridges both rivers okay See, and that's the thing. Once any aspect of this gets industrialized, businesses on the whole don't care who they sell their products to. <laughs> in fact, they want to sell their products to as many people as possible. Yeah, interesting. So the industrialization of this, starting in the 70s, but especially in the 80s and then the 90s, is part of what really causes the confluence. Okay. Um. Because okay. the companies creating the um, uh, the overhead um, laminates, well, they don't care who's using their overhead laminates. They just <laughs> want to sell them to whoever, you know. And it's the amazing. companies selling the projectors don't care who they're selling them to. Right. You know, so the motivations for why you might buy the overheads or you might buy the new slide projector or you might end up buying um, Pro Presenter in the late 90s, you know, the motivations for why you might be getting into this could be completely different, but the product itself is the same. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so I worked at a Christian bookstore in the late 90s, um, yes. in part because of my desire to connect with my generation as a good gapper uh, yep. to... Uh, present DC talk and the like to uh, people oh, yeah. who, who are looking for it. But here's, I never thought of this until we had this conversation at that Christian bookstore in the mall, Limstone books, there was a variety of, of, I would say gap type of products, but they're almost separated. So then there was another wall, which was a praise and worship wall at the time. So this would have, I don't know, 96, 97. Yep. And on the praise and worship wall, you, you had, um, uh, maybe a little early hill song, but more the Maranatha and in, in, integrity and those type of things. And it was a different type of person who came in, a different type of tradition that came in and looked at that side of the wall. And the praise and worship side was just not something. It, it even had a certain uh, musical texture that was very different from the CCM wall. And, and oh, you're yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, so absolutely. It's really helpful to think about these two distinct trends. So what happens though, is these walls, these rivers, you're saying in the mid nineties come together. Yeah, eventually. I mean, because, you know, you're working at this bookstore, you're not checking ID cards when the people come in and go, <laughs> oh, 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 you're a Baptist, you're a gapper, you know, don't go to that praise and worship wall, you know, yeah. and, and some um, Assembly of God guy comes in and you go, yeah, you wouldn't be interested in any of this <laughs> gap literature on how to effectively reach people and how to start right. new services. You know, you're willing to sell to anybody, right? Right, right. You know, they themselves may head one way or the other, but in, right. you, in fact, you want them to linger and look at the entire end. Right. Let me show you this river. It's a nice one. That's right. Yeah. I mean, because once it's industrialized and becomes a business, you don't care who you sell to. Mm -hmm. So is that, um, is it, is it a market focused reason that the rivers come together? Uh, that's yeah, a lot of it is, um, and also other developments that support the market. Okay. So my favorite, one of my favorite aspects of the history that we learned in doing the research was where CCLI actually came from. Oh, what? Yeah, I have no idea. I just know it's, I have to use it. <laughs> it's coming from a church in Portland, Oregon, Bible Temple. Okay. Uh, now known as Mana House, pure gift river church. In okay. fact, Reg Lazelle, this Canadian, yes, the the first CC, CEO of CCLI grew up in Reg Lazelle's church. Interesting. And his parents were church planters and musicians for Reg Lazelle. Okay. So that's the word. He went to Reg Lazelle's Bible College. I mean, that's, he's, if you talk to Edward Roshinsky, he's pure <laughs> primitive gift river thinking guy. Okay. And so okay. CCLI develops in that church and in the Pentecostal network associated with that church. It was a large Pentecostal church that sponsored ministers' conferences and music ministers' conferences. And in the 80s, they, they dawned on them because of a lawsuit against uh, up in Illinois that they were using all of these songs in their hour-long times of singing illegally. Okay. <laughs> and uh, there was a church that got really hammered um, in a lawsuit. And they go, How do, we got to find a solution to this. And there were several companies, but CCLI, Christian Copyright Licensing uh, International, is the one that... Um, uh, worked with the industry and came up with the largest corpus of songs that the license gave you access to. And uh, uh, we got their first denominational breakdown the list. Oh, interesting. That they put out every six months along with their top 25 list that they put out with their every six month royalty payouts. And it's really interesting. There are a lot of Southern Baptists but initially, everybody else on the list towards the top are all kind of, they're all Gift River folks from these Pentecostal worlds. Hmm. Six years later, that's no longer the case. Southern Baptist Convention and mainline denominations like United Methodism. So wow. by the mid-90s, evangelicals and mainliners or some of the predominant users of a CCLI license. 
Hmm. You know, and CCLI, I mean, they adapted their own marketing scheme and figured out how to advertise to a wide range of churches and make themselves available to a wide range of churches. And, um, you know, this is part of the air we breathe now and the water we drink. You got to have a CCLI license. And So then this is, and so it's in that period where things start to shift and it becomes more mainstream uh, stream here it is the, two, the streams come together and make the mainstream i guess yeah. of what's happening and so t- tell me then what's happened then in the last 25 years um, um well several things uh, pretty much what happens to every developed movement that's entering its second uh one thing is you get a whole new generation of people who don't remember anything prior right and just assume the way things are or the way things are Mm. and so for many folks there's less emphasized less emphasis on the underlying theology sure Um, and so you you start getting some literature that says oh we can't forget this this is really what's motivating the whole thing um you start getting celebrities Mm. so there are no no real celebrity worship leaders until the 1990s okay and who who would that be uh like in in the 90s would this have been like i don't know ron cannoli or i don't know i'm trying to think of well um, it depends integrity would be don moen okay yeah sure um from the british side of the gift river folks um uh matt redmond yeah uh chris tomlin if you want an american sort of name yeah sure um paul balash um kind of a dominant sort of name um so so what is okay getting off the music side then what does this do then to protestant worship like i I have an idea but i'm curious more from a historical perspective like what's then what what has become of protestant worship in this period well it depends on which river a congregation started in okay background in so what's happened in pentecostalism globally is that this form of worship has just almost displaced everything else okay this is what Pentecostal worship looks like to one degree or another around the world now. I mean, there's some outliers, there's some different things, but this is what it looks like. What happened here in North America among evangelical, but especially mainline denominations was the addition of a a new service. Mm -hmm. Uh, I call it the movie theater phenomenon. Okay. So when I was a kid and we went to the movie theaters, it almost didn't matter what movie was playing because there was only one screen. You just wanted the experience. You went, you bought your popcorn, your Coke, and you went in and you watched the one movie that the theater was going to show for about three to four weeks, unless it was a blockbuster and they kept showing it. Today, you go to the movie theater. And there are multiple screens and you have to make a choice. Yeah. 
what kind of movie do I want to watch? And that's what happened to mainline congregations and many evangelical congregations. So the marquees started saying 8.30 contemporary. Uh, you know, yeah. Often what you got is 8.30 traditional service, 9 o'clock contemporary service, 11 o'clock traditional service. You know, I had an interesting interview with a Pentecostal pastor about four or five years ago. He was um, uh, Church of God in Christ. He was African-American. Yeah. And he said, you know, it was really interesting to see him begin to realize that there was a gap way of thinking. And so I was hearing him describe to me, he says, oh, my church is really kind of settled into a, a old form of praise and worship. And I'm afraid we're not reaching the young people in our church anymore. Oh. So I'm thinking about starting a second service on Sunday morning with a different sort of style to it. And for him, that was just kind of like a completely novel idea. Yeah, sure. <laughs> because he was used to a Pentecostal world where praise and worship. They already been there, yeah. It'd been there. Um, but it was getting old enough now. He thought it was getting a little bit stale. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, he was just flabbergasted when I said, you know, there have been people who've been specializing in this and wrote literature 30 years ago to tell you how to do it. Right. It's interesting that he, so the like, two it, rivers it's that discovered each other. Yes. Um, that's a major development. Uh, the other big development is that the education got very formalized. Okay. And by that, I mean, you started getting accredited institutions offering degrees. Yes. And how to lead this. And to um, push, you know, like it, it, uh, as, as such, like the market is asking for it. I'm sure like people yeah. in like a seminary, like the two jobs that you have uh, that churches are looking for, a worship pastor and senior pastor, you know, like, and, and they have something very particular in mind. And it's like, well, how do you go about educating uh, that market need, so to speak, um, and, and then also, we don't want to respond just to the, the uh, we don't want to just respond to the needs of a market too. This is a no. tension that seminaries um, are facing on a regular basis. Thanks for bringing that up, Andy, that term worship pastor, because yeah. that's another big development. Hmm. Um, I mean, I know many congregations where it's presumed that the musician is the main shaper of the service. Hmm. So you get the scripture, you get the main sermon idea, and you get kind of the main kind of feel or purpose of the sermon from the pastor. Right. But then the musician shapes the service. That's astonishingly new mm. in the history of Christian worship. And mm. it's part of what, you know, the, where we started the interview, this podcast, this, you know, my student. Right, right, right. Um, he was having a hard time wrapping his brain around the idea that the preacher, the pastor, is the main shaper of the service. Yes. Um, one of the more interesting churches I've gotten to study over the years is an evangelical covenant church up on the north side of Chicago. I and some other folks did a thorough documentation of this church um, in the early aughts. And they had had the same main musician for 20 years. Hmm. And one of the things that we tracked was how her job title and her job responsibilities morphed. 
Interesting. And she went from being like a pianist and song leader to a worship leader where she was the main shaper of the services. Mm. It's in, it, 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 even the, the word song, I remember like uh, watching my, fa my, my parents, not just my father, um, try to cope with what was going on in the mid 90s. And there's always this pull towards, like in general, when people disagree to blend, right? The, the famous word in worship to, to blend. But there was a way of like, it's still being connected to this older, these older expressions um, of, of songs or singing. And like, yeah. so <laughs> I'm sure you've, saw, you've seen this, but the quote, praise and worship time originally in the Salvation Army lands that I was in uh, was the singspiration. Right. You're, oh, yeah. You have this idea like it's still like maybe it's just something you might clap clap to that might have a drum set beat and trying to figure this out. Um, so my, my denomination then moved to have something called the uh, a whole series called the Holly Courses, but they waited until the songs were shown to like have some prominence. But that yep. then it never was cutting edge enough and it created all sorts of challenges like for what it's going to be and just trying to do, be both and and as a and when i was serving as a pastor you know within the context of the salvation army you have all of these things that are pulling on you and yet wanting to create a situation that's evangelistic but yet uh enabling people to experience the gift side of the river at the same yeah. time so these are all really helpful terms that helped me think through my experience <laughs> well i i'm glad i mean um you're almost answering your own question, you know, so what changed? Uh, because every time you say something, it reminds me of a different sort of aspect we can I should have stopped talking, yeah. Yeah, the whole movement actually has been really hard on printed hymnals or song collections. Because gap people are always really cautious about them because as soon as you print them, they're static. Right, right, right. And so you might get to a point in the near future where they're no longer useful or attractive and the gift people man those folks can generate songs <laughs> so they almost don't want to create hymnals because you, you just you put boundaries over this huge creativity of songwriting that yes. comes out of the gift river um what, what's been the biggest surprise to you as you entered into this study in the last 15 years? Like, what did you not expect? I, I, I applaud you for going after it. You know, it would have been easy to, you know, here you are, you are a, a, as a career as a professor, now in a research position. You could have just said, I'm just going to stay focusing on uh, 18th century Methodism. But there's something in you that's pulled you to want to figure out what's going on in our current context. But what surprised you in that? Um, I think what really surprised me is how this is not a new history. Okay. So within the broad history of Protestant worship, there's a long strand called free church worship. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and there are a lot of people wrapped up in that. Um, and it starts in the 16th century. Uh, it, it encompasses a wide variety of folks over the centuries, Puritans, Baptists, Quakers, Anabaptists, Salvation Army. Yeah. You know, uh, but the underlying idea is that we will shape worship according to scripture. 
Okay. And we're not worshiping faithfully unless we're worshiping scripturally. Okay. That's the recurring idea. And it slowly dawned on both me and Dr. Lim that this history is just a new episode of that old story. Yes. Because the musical aspect has been so dynamic and so enticing. And I mean, individually for me, I came to faith singing the choruses of the late 1970s, mm. you know, um, and just flabbergasted that we could sing them to guitars, you know, rather than <laughs> some pipe organ. Um, and most of the academic literature has been focused on the music, but to come to the realization that it's really about Protestant Christians grappling with scripture, that that's the real story, Mm. that's been the biggest surprise and it's also been the biggest delight because it has allowed other significant historic figures to come to the forefront yeah. you know just a minute we we shifted the camera focus and many other folks who were on the stage but a music setting for the camera lens didn't pick up once you shift it uh shifted the aperture to scripture rather than music I yes. hope I'm getting the camera terms correct. <laughs> then a whole different set of people and events and dates popped to the surface. And that's that was the most pleasing for oh, me. Yeah. I, I, as a historian, I like to bring attention to important people who I don't think have gotten their just due. Yeah, that is great. Well, again, uh, to everybody listening here, the book is A History of Contemporary Praise and Worship. Understanding the ideas, the biblical ideas that reshaped the Protestant church. So, uh, Dr. Ruth, thank you so much for your time. I always ask this question um, in a good Methodist way. I think of uh, the two sides of the gospel, not just uh, justification, but sanctification. That's the idea behind the title, more to the story. But yeah. I also like to think, you know, there's more to the story of praise and worship music, which we found out today. But also, I bet there's more to the story of Lester Ruth than's typically told. So I'm curious. You're the first person, by the way, I'll give you a chance to think about it, who picked up my Martin Luther bobblehead. You said, what's that? And then you saw my Salvation Army flag in the corner. So you figured it all out. The liturgy of Andy Miller's office. You got it. But uh, cu curious, uh, um, is there more to the story of Lesser Ruth? Um, yeah, I... Um... Most people, when they think of liturgical historians, assume that our own first comfortable home of worship is pipe organs, hymns, you know, a lot of formality, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that I've got a complete collection of Gregorian chant CDs <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and and they would might assume the same thing for my co-author, Lim Sui Hong. But one of the things that we found really helped us and kept us committed to the project is that this world is a first home for us. Um, In what way? Well, I mean, I came to faith and became an active Christian disciple in a campus ministry, college, late 1970s, uh, singing old choruses like uh, Seek Ye First or Therefore yeah. the Redeemed of the Lord Shall Return and Come with Singing Unto Zion. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I had to learn 
how to appreciate organs and hymnody. Interesting. Once I got to seminary. Um, and I, that, that just might surprise some. Yeah, people. I think that is distinct. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much for taking time to come on this You're podcast. Welcome. My pleasure. Thank time. you so much for the opportunity. I really, we, uh, Dr. Lim and I are excited about this book and we just hope people will pick it up and read it and, and realize more, oh, there is more to the story. Oh, sounds like a good title for a podcast. Oh yeah. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Ruth. Okay, thank you.